Matt, we have a very special guest from in person from the other side of the Atlantic. Oh, don't don't worry, we don't use the video. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we're here to talk about a very special topic, which I've briefly. I will be coming back to it. The patrons, I I hear you. You want more of it, and we're talking about American freak shows because give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. In the continuity of tattoo history, American freak shows and American side shows is super important, and it's a kind of an intertwined history. And to understand more about the history of freak shows, we are joined by esteemed labor journalist <laughs> and freak show enthusiast Kim Kelly. Kim, say hello to everyone. Hello, I love that introduction. Freak show enthusiast just really has a great ring to it, and it could go so many different ways. I mean, anyone who has <laughs> formed a parasocial relationship with me and Matt through this show is a freak enthusiast. So. <laughs> We love you all. Well, then I'm right Speak at home. yourself, Thomas. So, Matt, where do we start with the history of freak shows as it pertains to tattoos? Well, I don't know, like, I think freak shows is a sort of interesting word in a way because it, it's a subset of something bigger, right, which is the kind of sideshow. And, of course, the sideshow, what's it on the side of? It's on the side of circuses. So the sideshow is basically the stuff... Traditionally, although, you know, it would develop into being something of its own thing, but the sideshow is the stuff around the circus. So the stuff that you do before the circus show started, right? So um, circus would roll into town. This is, you know, from the mid-19th century onwards, I suppose. We have essentially, right, like the circus happening, all this performance, and then around it you have all kinds of other things to keep people busy and keep people spending money. So that is fortune tellers. That is kind of carnival games, you know, that these these words like carny and things get used. So people having these kind of sideshow games. And then you have, which is, I suppose, where the kind of freak show idea develops from. You have these, um, you know, basically kind of curiosities, I suppose. Come and see the come and see the the the, the strange and wild things. And they're often um, you know, they're often kind of human oddities. So people with disabilities, they're often really quite problematically, and this is probably where the tattoo stuff comes in, first of all, with um, linked with things like, you know, look at the strange people from from some other places, you know, look look at the pygmies, look at the, the, the look at the these strange savages from the deepest, darkest jungles of wherever. And um, all of this kind of Victorian interest in we talked about in the podcast before, like things like physiognomy and physiognomy how we as white europeans are related culturally and evolutionarily to places around the world that all gets kind of built in with language of of sideshows and freak shows it's around you know around the same time um it's 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 weirdly this kind of mix of you know science and entertainment i mean those ideas go back probably even to the 18th century but i think probably with what we're talking about particularly in the u.s context it's like you know Early, you know, early decades, mid decades of the nineteenth century onwards. Yeah, and what we're looking at as well is that in the continuity of freak shows and sideshows, there is two different really distinctions. There are natural freaks, and then there are made freaks. There's three. Oh, there's three. There are three levels in the hierarchy. Okay, Kim, way into <laughs> school me, school me, tell me. And this is something that you know you come across a lot if you just read about this stuff. It's also something that was laid out very clearly to me when I went to sideshow school. 
because that's something that I did. We can talk more about that later, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there are three distinct levels of, I suppose, the hierarchy or the pyramid. And at the top, not to brag, are the natural born freaks mm-hmm. who were people that were born different. And they're people that were disabled, people that people like me that have specific congenital deformities or different conditions that are looked different through no fault or through no you know effort of their own. That's just kind of how we showed up. For all, for the uh, visual learners, Kim has a third arm coming out of her back. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that many fingers. No, I just for context, I have um this. I don't want to say condition because it's not that big a deal, but I have this um. This, this thing called ectrodactyly, you might have heard it described as lobster claw syndrome. Um, I'm, I'm not affected that much, but on my, so just for people listening at home, my left arm is smaller and I've got like three fingers and I've got a very like claw-like appearance, which is like very metal. And uh, it's just kind of part <laughs> so of my deal. But people like me would be regarded as, as sideshow royalty in a way in the specific hierarchy. So that's the natural borns. And then below are the self-made freaks, people with tattoos and piercings, lizard boys, alligator girls, people that like decided I'm going to look different for fun and profit, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like if you see someone like the Enigma or the, the lizard man, people who have tattooed everything. That's kind of where I think tattooing really sits. And then at the bottom, which is kind of a real inversion of, I guess, the rest of the world hierarchy, right? The bottom are just the working acts. So your mm-hmm. fire breathers, sword swallowers, glass walkers, people that are just acquire a special skill, and that's what they use to perform and to kind of apply their trade. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. your, that's your strong men, that's your, that kind of thing. Yeah, the diving girls, the the trap, like it's all, it's, it's the more circusy acts, I suppose. And also the secret fourth thing as well, which is the gaff. Oh yeah. So this is this is people who are essentially faking their act. So this is like, you know, legless wonders who have their like feet, you know, tucked up behind their back or like armless wonders who like they have their arm inside their tunic or they're faking either a natural deformity and being a, you know, born freak or they are kind of cheating the performance <laughs> as well. This is like Sword swallowers who have like folding swords that collapse, yeah. you know. So, so cheating. Yeah. The, way, the real version hurts so much. <laughs> <laughs> I think like it's it's probably. I was just gonna um, just read a bit from um, this book called Hubert's Freaks uh, by oh, Gregory Gibson. Do you know this book? That's a good um, one. So this is this a book by by Gregory Gibson, which is the story of a particular kind of um, uh, sideshow freak show from New York. From Coney Island, but the opening chapter or the opening section, I'm just going to read you a bit of it because it sort of sets up the history quite nicely of what we're talking about here, right? So, um, this is directly from Gibson. In 1831, a Yankee sea captain named Benjamin Morrill captured two cannibals in the South Pacific and brought them back to America. For the next few years, he displayed them throughout the northeastern United States at places like New York City's American Museum. He wrote a book about his adventures and his wife, who accompanied him on his voyage wrote her own account, which verified his. Um, The two savages, named Sunday and Monday, in honour of the days in which they were captured, astonished American audiences. Captain Morell wrote, In the the year of 1830, they were cannibals. In the year of 1832, they are civilised, intelligent men. Um, And he goes on to say, None of uh, Morell's fellow mariners were were fooled. They called him the biggest liar in the Pacific. (laughs) His faux cannibals were probably just domesticated Pacific Islanders or African-American impersonators posing as savages to astonish white American rubes. They're among the earliest examples of such. 
right? So, so this is kind of what we're talking about. And with with tattooing, that kind of boundary between fantasy and reality is is really present. So, some of the earliest um, examples, you know, are people like John Rutherford, right? John Rutherford, this um, Englishman who claims to have been captured by Maoris um, and uh, 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 who claims to have, you know, basically survived amongst the um, amongst the Maori by by getting his face tattooed. Um, he became known as like the White Lies. Chief. Lies. Yeah, lie. Well, it, yeah, it turns out even at the time, this is, and again, this is like in, in the 1820s, like, even at the time, this 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 um, reverend, funny enough, writes this article. Going, I don't think the boat he lived, uh, he says he was on, ever existed. <laughs> like, if you were going to get that kind of facial tattooing against your will, like, it, it, you wouldn't be able to sit still. No, no Maori chief would give a white guy this kind of tattooing. You know, of social status. Like, the whole story is nonsense. But he manages to make quite a good living for a while, um, and sells a book and performs at. Uh, you know, in, in in England, not quite. We wouldn't really call them sideshows. We call them kind of music, you know, kind of music hall acts or or things like that. And so, like really early on, like the history of the history of tattooing and these sideshows becomes intertwined with this idea of like, oh my god, savages. And in fact, with what you were saying, Kim, I think that the story about the self-made freaks is really interesting because that that story kind of becomes a bit old hat by the. Uh, early 20th century people have sort of seen it and and the world's a bit more known in the you know in the era of photography and in the in the era of kind of you know post-world war one with steamships and travel these kind of story, stories of savages in the jungle aren't so exciting anymore and actually um someone like the great omi who also gets his face tattooed with big heavy black tattooing in the 1920s he does that because like he, he initially tries out a kind of i was captured in the jungle story and no one really cares <laughs> and so then it becomes a kind of why the hell would you do that to yourself pitch shout out to oh my who owed george burchett so much money so much money i mean I, I, the story's a bit more a bit more fuzzy than that but basically like w- when the story of the when the stories of the the natural fr- the natural freaks certainly in, in terms of tattooing be- become boring the self-made freaks become even more interesting because like it becomes a much more interesting human interest story of like why would you do that to yourself? What what kind of what kind of crazy person are are, are you? Yeah, you know? and it becomes like a, a real kind of contextual measure of extremity of like people aren't used to seeing you know people who are heavily pierced or heavily tattooed, and it is when the wider world has been explained away by actual science, then that's what becomes the real curiosity. But I was going to ask him, can you? You mentioned being in, you know, circus school and your time in the circus. Can you tell me about, like, w- what led you on that path and what it was like actually working in the circus? Sure, and is I don't want to, well, man, at first I was going to jump in and mention Olive Oatman. But oh, yeah. Do you, know, do you know about her? Of course, yeah. Well, of course, you're a tattoo historian, so of course you do. <laughs> I, don't Never think, mind. I don't think our audience, I don't think we've spoken about Olive Oatman on the, on this, on the podcast, so you can, you can mention her story, because oh. hers is a kind of opposite story to, um, to Rutherford's, right? Yeah, it's a quick, just a quick side note, because I think it's interesting. There was this woman named Olive Oatman, this is during the, uh, God, I can't remember the exact time period, because it all kind of bleeds together into a whole just sort of orgy of genocide in my country, but uh, <sighs> just during the, like, the... Yeah, it's like, manif- late, it's like late, late 19th century, I think, when her stories happen. Yeah, basically, a woman, 
<clears throat> whose whose family was was heading west. Go west, young man. Manifest destiny. All that. Uh, she was captured by members of uh, an indigenous tribe, and she lived with them. And they tattooed her face, uh, blue tattoos on her chin, right around her mouth, very visible. And she was eventually returned to white civilization. And whether or not she really wanted that to happen, whether or not she felt like that's where she belonged after spending an, ext- an extended period with the members of that tribe, that's still kind of up for historical debate. But she ended up uh, it stuck back in white society and there wasn't a lot that she could do about her appearance. And that was incredibly shocking in the Victorian era. This woman who had this white woman who had blue face tattoos. And so mm-hmm. she ended up having to exhibit herself kind of on the freak show circuit for a while, which she hated. She was just, just a lady. Like she wasn't trying there's to. A, she there's a really good attention. book about her story by um by Margot Mifflin, which is worth the girl reading, with the blue tattoo. The girl with the blue tattoo. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm pulling from. It's just it's. I just always think it's an interesting as because uh just part of little piece of that history because it's the intersection of of sideshow and colonialism and just all of these things. And also just hearing about it just kind of dovetails with the idea that so many people who took part in the freak show didn't really want to or just economic or social necessity that put them there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in between, you know, in between the kind of Rutherfords of the world in the early decades of the 19th century and then Omi in the early decades of the 20th century, you've also got where, which is sort of the period that Oatman crosses over with a bit, you have these performing tattooed, largely tattooed women. There were some performing tattooed men as well. Um, Although that again, they very quickly became not very interesting to audiences. Um, the, the performing tattooed women again. Part of it was, as you said, uh, Kim, a kind of prurience at the self-made freaks. So you have um, people like Emma de Berg in particular, and her husband Frank, who's also a tattooed man. You have Tom Riley's wife Flo Riley, like lots of women who actually were married to tattoo artists. Funnily enough, and they're they're getting tattooed heavily in the aftermath of the encounter with Japan, often with this very extensive kind of beautiful Japanese work. Flo Riley in London is described in the 1880s as like, um, you know, the, the living gallery of Japanese art. But again, it's, a, it's an excuse to go in, in the US. You'd be going to, you know, you'd be going to a Barnum and Bailey, a Ringling Brothers kind of circus. In, in, in the UK, you might be going to the Royal Aquarium. Um, but it's basically a good excuse to see a woman with not many clothes. <laughs> see a woman with not many clothes on. There wasn't a huge um, amount of entertainment back in the Victorian era. Is either go to the aquarium to see a naked woman or smoke opium. <laughs> yeah, or both, at the, or both at the same time. But right, I think, see I an think those kind of intersections, right, between the kind of, you know, the kind of medical, scientific, and the and the prurient and the exotic and the sexy are all like really intertwined. The other, just lastly, the other really important name to throw out here while we're throwing out names is a guy called Captain Costa, Costanensis, who's an Albanian guy, and he's like probably the first big famous performing tattooed man um he works in circuses and and, and sideshows and music halls and theaters across europe including in england and in america he's a greek albanian guy he's covered in these tattoos that um are at least he claims to have had them done in burma and he sp- spins all these wild tales about being captured like he ha- like helped lead a revolt of mine workers against the chinese occupiers of burma like <laughs> How, but he becomes this kind of medical curiosity. So he's like, you know, he gets inspected by scientists. and like, oh, I think these are real. These tattoos are definitely real. And he becomes this huge, famous circus performer. And the story shifts over the decades, depending on what's fashionable and what's exciting. But 
it, in all of these tales, like this mash together of like, yeah, colonial European expansionism, Orientalism in that broad sense of like foreigners are weird, the, the sexualization of that as well all comes together. And I think like, you know, there's not there's not much on TV in the 19th century, right? Because TV hasn't been invented yet. So this is what you got. This is like, this is, this is the kind of, you know, uh, performing arts equivalent of Channel 4 or something. Channel 5. Yeah, the, the Victorians didn't have Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm, so they got to do something else. Well, right, I, 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 I want to bring back my yeah. original question. Sorry. And Sorry. that kind of, um, it, it, I mean, that does kind of, after even just talking a little bit about the pro- problematic and cruel and nasty parts of um, of sideshow history, it's like, why would someone who has a choice, w- who is disabled, want to get involved with that now, knowing everything we know? And I just sort of fell, well, I can't, no one just falls into sideshow school. You have to, like, <laughs> go find it. There's only really one place that does it. But um, I ended up going to sideshow school at Coney Island, which is, Obviously, Coney Island is just this incredibly historic site for the sideshow and the circus and live entertainment. And, and for tattooing. Uh, and for tattooing and for human zoos. Just every every interesting historical entertainment-related moment has probably gone through Coney Island. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, that's where my partner's from. So I spent a lot of time in Coney Island anyway. And we used to go on dates to the Coney Island sideshow mm-hmm. because I was interested because I'm a history nerd and I've been interested in this stuff for a while anyway. But I, he just mentioned offhand one day, oh, yeah, I think they used to do a sideshow school here. And I was like, sideshow? You can go and learn how to do this stuff? I thought it was like how tattooing used to be. You had to just know someone and work your way up, and it wasn't allowed to share the knowledge. But it turns out you pay some money, and a guy will teach you how to do everything. Turns out, turns out tattooing is like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's wild how things change. I mean, it's <laughs> and since I'm a journalist, I thought to myself, okay, this is this is kind of an interesting story, right? Like a real life lobster girl goes to sideshow school, and at first I went into it thinking like, okay, this will be a cool feature, like I'll sell this to a magazine, whatever, I'll write about it, it'll be fun. I didn't really expect to connect with it as deeply as I ended up doing, um, and it was really during the first couple moments of sitting there with the nine other students because it's only about ten people. It's led by Adam Reelman, who is just a, an icon in Coney Island modern history. He's the professor, professor in his Brooklyn-ass accent. Um, and he, he was just giving a quick little rundown of sideshow history and talking about freaks and talking about natural borns and born difference and everything. And he went around the room and said, you know, does anyone here qualify as a natural born? Not expecting anyone to raise their hand. Uh, but then I did. And it turns out I'm the first person in the history of that program to have been a natural born to have showed up and gone to sideshow school so just seeing their reaction to that really it did something to me right because when you grow up with a visible and sort of rare physical deformity for lack of a better word it's it's complicated right it's not something that you necessarily or at least not something i necessarily really waved around i kept my hands in my pockets a lot when i was growing up and when mm-hmm. i was younger it was just something i didn't really want to deal with because it wasn't a big deal to me but it seemed like a pretty big deal to people that would spot it and be like what what's going on with you yeah it's yeah, not yeah. a conversation you necessarily want to have all the time it's like oh my god what's up with your tattoos or what's up with your piercings but like forever and <laughs> you can't really uh you didn't get a choice but anyway i i went through the sideshow school process learned how to breathe and eat fire and walk on glass and swallow sores which is so hard i'm still not very good at it hammer a nail on my face um do feats of strength 
set off a mousetrap on my tongue. Um, played with a snake for a little bit. Just kind of all the classics. <laughs> Girl in a box, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. breaking concrete on my stomach on a bed of nails. And it's all the thing with sideshow acts is it's real. It's not like magic. Like it's a very physical. You're you're doing these things. There's specific ways that you have to do it so you don't, you know, puncture a lung or set yourself on fire or mm-hmm. get chemical burns in your lungs like someone I know did because she learned off YouTube and not from a professional. <laughs> Breathing fire, much like tattooing, do not learn it off YouTube. Please don't, because you could die so like it's so easy to die. <laughs> They really hammered that home. <laughs> um, and I went through don't you, that. Yeah. Don't take sword swallowing advice from a podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah, please find. That's one of the kind of things where like, you got to find a guy that knows. You got to find a guy. Do you know the story, um, uh, uh, Kim, of the, the Kleppy Bells? Kleppy Bells. It sounds vaguely familiar. So but these, I feel are, like you're these, are your, these are your forebears, right? It, it, with um, kind of lobster, lobster clawed people. So... Again, reading from a book here, this is from um, Armand Loire's book, Mutants, which I really like. Oh, um, a good one. So in this book, uh, he talks about uh, all kinds of things in, uh, that are kind of you know, deformities and uh, you know, portrayal of, 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 of people with, with, with um, interesting physiognomies. Anyway, this is about the Kleppy Bells. So um, in, old, in the old Scottish dialect, to clep is to call. Uh, and partens are crabs, call down among the crabs and be drowned. Um, this uh, basically, this 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 girl had been like um, executed, and the ex- and the executor said, "Clap down among the partens and be drowned." And um, yeah, as recently as 1900, a family bearing the names of Bell and possessing hands molding molded from birth into a claw-like deformity lived in the southeast of Scotland and were said to be dependent of the Cleppy Bells. Um, so. A man named Bell had done his after he'd done his cruel work being an ex- executioner. So he was an executioner. His wife gave birth to a child who bore the um, ineradicable mark of his father's guilt. Instead of its fingers, its hands bore claws like cra- a crab. The ba- the bairn is clapped, said the midwife. The marks of Bell's judicial crime would be visited on his dependents, many of whom would bear the deformity. They would be known as Cleppy Bells. So this this executioner like executed basically this innocent young woman and like God smited him and his descendants ah! with with, with claw hands, um, and fine. so yeah like um, a little teratology for you. There's this there's this uh, there's this whole sort of like storytelling and those are the, those are the kind of things which get, would would be great to get the get the people in right You'd, the carnival barker the the, the 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 posters everything would kind of advise advise people that this was going to happen yeah i mean the american equivalent would be the styles family right grady styles Mm -hmm. and his his descendants i'm i think i'm friends with his grandson on facebook which is kind of wild (laughs) if you think about how close that history is (laughs) oh gosh but oh yeah i was just i'm all over the place but just i think there's that moment of um just kind of the light bulb switching in my head of like okay this is something i have to deal with to Wow, in this specific community, in this specific context, this is like a gift. Like I'm mm-hmm. winning this I'm winning this side show because <laughs> I have this specific like physiogen physiology whatever you know physiology there you go it sounds better coming out of your mouth. But it, it, <laughs> it, it's really interesting like doing the research for the side show series that we're doing on Patreon 
and reading a lot of you know personal letters and diaries from people who were involved in sideshow acts and it seems like particularly when i've seen stuff from people who are in their mid teenage years particularly ones with you know born physical deformities it seems like there's this real community of understanding that like everyone's kind of in this together and like whether you're a barker or you're a fire breather or you're someone who might be missing some limbs or some other you know physical ailment that there's really a place of belonging and understanding and it's you know that all exists before you get to the next town you get on the stage and then you're faced with what the general public kind of sees you as and it creates that interesting in-group and out-group between people who are know in the culture versus people who are viewers of the culture yeah gobble gobble one of us you know (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing because it is such a specific and i think in many ways insular culture even now like it's it's such a it's not a dying art but it's it's definitely a diminished art like live entertainment in and of itself has definitely changed a lot since its heyday but the sideshow has such it does have that sort of purient kind of problematic kind of stench to it depending on who you are and how you feel about disability and how you feel about live performance mm-hmm. and just where you fall on that sort of like a strata of of opinions because I, I when i was writing the article about about sideshow i reached out I, I interviewed people um you know folks from other disability associations that were not big fans you know <laughs> they mm-hmm. were like this is you know, we it, it, it used to be it's it's like a source of pain for our community. We used to be exhibited like animals. Like this is not something necessarily to celebrate, but we also understand that some people in our community want to kind of reclaim that for themselves, and we understand that too. Like it's it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to other sideshow performers who are disabled about this, and there's such a sense of pride in the people I've spoken to, who um. Who are, who are also natural borns, who have found space in the sideshow and in live performance. And I think it's important for us to hold on to that piece of our history, right? And to mm-hmm. do that, have that reclamation, and to also understand like just how deeply fucked up that mm-hmm. history is and grapple with it. But, you know, we can't, it's, it's part of our history, right? Yeah, we can't yeah, just yeah. let it be taken away because it makes some people uncomfortable. Mm. You know, ov- obviously the kind of like, text of this conversation in a way is is Tom Browning's Freaks film, right? Which so much of it is uh, you know is horribly um, uh, horribly uh, exploitative, and it's been it's been kind of hauled over by by film theorists and by disability scholars and historians for a long time. But I think like um, in in amongst I don't know how much of the the writing about that film you've read, Kim, but my sense is that like even in the kind of grotesqueness of that movie um there is a there is something of what you're talking about right which is this um kind of group identity and um this sense of belonging i mean you know it has all this it has all this um potentially kind of eugenicist stuff in it and 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 again i think people have come particularly who come from a more you know, probably more proximate position to it, see it actually as in a in the way they're talking about and seeing these the freaks, so to speak, as represented in that film as exactly as you're talking, like as a community of people who who are who are brought together in common cause, right? And I, I don't know, I don't know what you make of that movie, because I think it's such a good I think it's such, the, the discussion around the film sort of mirrors some of the discussions around the histories that you're talking about more generally, mm-hmm. right? 
I love that movie so much. Right, yeah, I this think, is what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really beautiful. I mean, obviously, yeah, there's it's just something that can be dissected, and there's nuance, and of course, I'm not like not a blanket endorsement, sure, but the, there's so many scenes that are just so humanizing. You see people who are labeled as freaks, who are disabled, who look different. Like you see people having crushes on each other and standing up for one another and looking out for their homies and breaking bread and having inside jokes and performing and giggling. Like it's just, I, th- I think one of the reasons that so many people were so shocked and appalled and horrified is because it reminded them that sideshow freaks, as they branded us, that we're people just like them. Mm-hmm. And I think people could not handle thinking of us that way thinking about days in violet hilton their love affairs or prince randy and having a smoke like we're just like you we just came out a little different and nobody goes out the way they come in so you never know what happens between birth and death and it you know i i, I think it's an interesting thing that it's like me and matt have talked about it a lot when it comes to tattooing is that like when you have like any kind of community where that is viewed as kind of an outgroup by wider society people t- on the outside tend to view it as monolithic that like everyone kind of thinks the same way and we think about this one way and then everyone else is like on the outside and doesn't really understand it but it it is like that you know there is quote unquote discourse around something like freaks that like people who are in the community think differently from people who are outside the community but they also think differently from each other yeah it's even the word freak itself right like where i feel like People tiptoe around it a little bit in these discussions. But even uh, even back when, when Annie Jones, the bearded lady, was trying to get people to stop using it, I've spoken to people recently in the community who are like, oh, I'm a freak. I'm a proud freak. That's, some, that's a mantle that I wear because of the history and because I'm not like everyone else. I don't want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, they're even the term itself, it's not, I mean, I'm not going to get into... The, the the bigger issue of political and identity groups reclaiming names for themselves because that's like that's a little above my pay grade right but in this specific instance it i i kind of like the idea of being a sideshow freak it's not something that i but it's also not something that i would like just some guy in the street come up and see yeah. me and be like oh you're like a sideshow freak like you don't you don't get to say that but i can say that you know that's when you start swinging at them matt do you, do you have any questions before you have to go well i, I want to say you know like um the status of tattooing within the contemporary sideshow I'd be interested in because, again, like what was interesting, again, in terms of these kind of um, issues of perception, right, is that certainly uh, in, in the British, yeah, I think this is true in Germany too, but certainly the British and American sideshows, like they were quite good markets for tattoo artists. And in, in Britain at the Aquarium, um, Tom Riley, for example, and Alfred South, like would set up their tattoo booths and they there was even like conflict over who got the pitch because it was very lucrative people could come and see the tattooed ladies or the tattooed men and they could then go home with the tattoo and in the us you know again people like frank howard uh, and his wife annie who were like these really famous important perform tattoo performers in the late 19th century worked for barnum they became like tattoo artist or frank became a tattoo artist himself he ran a tattoo shop in boston he sold tattoo equipment and like it was it's really interesting that not only you know as a viewer you can go and kind of gawp and i'm sure a certain percentage of a huge percentage of the viewership of of sideshows which and circuses would say i'm glad i'm not like them that's part of the thrill but for some people and maybe this is particularly true of the of the tattooing people like that's cool i want to get i want to get in on that right and so that 
that thing really interests me. And I know that the kind of contemporary sideshow, the rebirth of the contemporary sideshow with um, the Jim Rose Circus, and you mentioned Enigma and and, and Eric uh, Sprague, Lizard Man. They've sort of deliberately, and I think Turkish Horrors to some degree in the UK as well, like they've deliberately played with this intersection with subculture and tattooing in a way that has parodied and, and engaged with and, and you know, quite celebrated those subcultural histories in some really interesting ways. I mean, we should also probably, Tom, get, get Eric uh, Sprague, Lizard Man, on. Um, he's a super interesting figure in his own right. Um, walking through Camden is a real... Is a real treat with him. Guys, <laughs> tatted, tatted green. But I wonder, Kim, like, what's? Uh, I, I'm. I my my sense is that a, there's a real closeness now with the modern sideshow side circus burlesque world and tattooing. Right? It's so interesting because I go to um, tattoo conventions once in a while because maybe there's artists in town I want to see. Maybe I just want to go be around. It's funny, I would say my people, but tattoo culture is so varied and so not monolithic. It's not like not always my people. Like, yeah. I'm not a big affliction guy. but <laughs> And that's in the U.S., you know? But it's something that, like, whenever you go to a tattoo convention, at least in the U.S., there's also people doing suspension. There's right. also burlesque. There's also a fire eater. There's sometimes you'll see a freak show. And then, well... Not not as it maybe not build as such, but you'll see some oddities. You'll see some gaffes, like some taxidermied stuff, or you'll see like some things in jars. Like it's all sort of uh, kind of crunched together. It's like this is alt kind of spooky culture, and then there's just tattooers everywhere. Like it's mm-hmm. been very kind of pushed together into this just sort of general alternative culture. And maybe some of that does go back to Jim Rose in the '90s when you had you know people with a lot of piercings and tattoos doing this in a very bombastic way, kind of doing this modern freak show thing. But it's it's funny because I think there's still a line, like uh, a woman that I performed with at Coney Island, Insectivora, the world's most partially illustrated woman. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> that's her tagline. She, she has a lot of tattoos and she has, yeah, she has very um, distinct and bold facial tattoos. But she's also like a brilliant fire eater and she she can do all the classics and that's what she does on stage. Mm-hmm. But it's still like she is people to come take photos with her. She's very like it's part of her whole deal. And she's told me before I interviewed her for an article um, earlier in the pandemic when I spoke to sideshow performers and circus artists like what are you doing to survive? And she just told me how difficult it was for her to find employment because once you modify your body to that extent, you're still it, I mean, yeah, sure. A lot of people have nice sleeves. People even have cute little face tattoos. You could go anywhere in, in Dalston and get like a little like white ink rose on your temple. But it's not the same as getting massive tribal markings right. on your face yeah, or yeah, yeah. becoming a lizard. I think that line is still there. And I, I don't know if we'll ever get past it, but it is interesting. I mean, yeah, Omi is such a good example of that um, because he, you know, he, he came out of World War One. And was broke, like he tried to run a chicken farm and couldn't, <laughs> went bankrupt. He tried to make money as a tattooed man, just of the conventional kind, and no one gave a shit. So then he he got all these crazy, you know, heavy black work on his face and became the zebra man and this human monster and made a good living at that. But but that was it. So what I mean, and then and then he and then that story kind of, as I said, ran out of road and. He ended up then sharpening his teeth and having a big septum ring. His wife got involved. Um, but, but eventually, yeah, he, he sort of ran out of road as well. He, he retired 
to a caravan park in Dorset, but had quite a hard hard retirement because he's got a heavily tattooed black face in the mm-hmm. in the 1940s. So I think yeah, that that story of is exactly exactly right. You know, where people were pushing at boundaries because that's the way to make money and that's the way to live their lives. Um, but that's hard on your body, hard on your life. Yeah, and what happens when that, that industry goes away temporarily mm-hmm. exactly. or forever? Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Sanoderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Sanoderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Sanoderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Sanoderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Sanoderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Sanoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting, niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. So one thing that is very important now that Matt has left and we're falling into my semi area of expertise and your area of actual expertise is we're going to talk about the labor relations for the next 20 minutes, because obviously one thing that's very important when talking about the sideshow and freak show industry is how the how they related to each other in terms of like who was actually making money and who was performing and like you said earlier in the episode there is this relationship between like people who out of economic necessity would be involved in sideshows and then there'd be people running the show who might be making disproportionately too much money off performers so can you tell me a little bit about the labor relations in early, you know, sideshows and freak shows and what it was like going into the evolution of late stage capitalism as 
sideshows begin to peter out in the 1980s. So I, I was so excited to be able to kind of sneak sideshows into my book, which is for people listening at home. It's called A Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And there's a whole chapter on disabled workers. And so me being me and having experience I had, I was like, okay, well, the sideshow obviously makes sense to include. Not just because I'm a, uh, a freak show enthusiast, but because for a good amount of time, that was the only employment available mm-hmm. to people who had physical disabilities that were deemed exotic or interesting or horrific. Yeah, you know, uh, you didn't, you couldn't just go down the mines or go work in a factory because, I mean, at that point in time, people were still not. I mean, they're not great now, but back then, they they were not accepting. There were not, uh, there were not physical there were not accommodations for people who were disabled there was you were just a, a burden or a freak or a mistake like you, you you're not really regarded as a person who was human unless you happen to have a family that would care for you and take you in or who could afford to send you to a nicer sort of institution or would you would end up in a worse institution or end up in the workhouse there, there weren't a lot of options yeah 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 and um the the history of the sideshow in terms of a, as far as we see it as a place of work, I think there's two ways to look at it. First, there's people that chose to work there that made agreements with people like, whether like P.T. Barnum, if we think about General Tom Thumb, Charlie Stratford, for example, his parents decided, okay, we're going to have him work for this man. And Charlie grew up and became famous and he toward the world and he made millions he saved pt barnum from bankruptcy he met the queen he had a great time uh his wife lavinia warren same deal like they probably had the best possible working life you could have as a disabled person at that time but then you contrast things like that people that chose to join up who were paid a wage who made the choice and gave consent to exhibit themselves and to have that be their place of work with people that were forcibly sold into it and enslaved or coerced like i think all the time about the example of uh julia pastrana who yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time yeah when she was working she was known as alternately like the dog face woman the ape face woman the what is it really there's so many really ugly strains of just racism and xenophobia and sexism and uh, just every possible ism you can think of, right? This woman had to endure during her lifetime as a working artist and just Mm -hmm. as a human being. She was a person that she was basically sold to this man who became her manager, who then became her husband and dictated everything about her life. She was an accomplished singer and dancer. She spoke multiple languages, but because of her condition, um, she was covered in hair. She had a different, you know, an atypical appearance. She was an indigenous woman from Mexico. All these reasons that the public in the UK and in the US thought she was exotic and weird and gross and different. Like she was exhibited all over the country and exploited by this manager. It's it's thought. Um, I haven't found like I haven't done a ton of research in this specifically. It's thought that she was compelled to at one point labor as a sex worker because her manager decided that's what she was going to do. And after she died, her body and the body of her child who had the same condition she did were (laughs) taxidermied and then exhibited throughout the world again and ended up in storage in Norway until somebody found it. And she was eventually repatriated in like the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many different stories and so many different ways that someone can take part in the sideshow. And it's important to 
pay attention to how that has all manifested. It wasn't just, you know, running away to join the circus, but not every performer was exploited to that extent or treated in such an inhumane way. Like someone like Johnny Eck, who people might have seen him in Freaks. He's just this dashing gentleman who built himself as the half man. He had a great career. But there's also people like even going back to Sarah Bartman. She was exhibited on the on the freak show service. She was an African woman. She wasn't <laughs> she wasn't a freak. She was just an African woman from a specific tribe that had specific physical characteristics. But she be like her case, her career in the sideshow was sort of become almost a cautionary tale of how racism and colonialism, misogynoir, all all of these horrible oppressive structures can compound into one person's short miserable life yeah and it's like i think it's really interesting as well to think about not just like the necessity but the kind of compounding fact of you know not every performer is going to be a star and that there was there was stratums of the more severity severe the deformity or the more extreme the act the higher kind of draw rate they had for people coming to look at them and you had this case of these people who either through disability or some other circumstance could not exist economically in the outside world and being kind of finding this kind of employment that suited them but also we never hear about all of the performers that weren't you know tom thumb right there's i've done a ton of research into this just because I'm interested in hearing about who else was involved, especially women. That's, I guess, my special interest, disabled women. And hopefully I'll write a book about that if I can convince someone to let me publish it. But even just in terms of um, desirability, right, or what we might yeah. call pretty privilege, just how the the way, the juxtaposition of someone who is conventionally attractive or that people find beautiful, but who also has a physical disability or a physical appearance that is different and unique. You add in that sexualization, you add in these other layers. Uh, for example, you think of Daisy and Violet Hilton, who are conjoined twins. They were white women with long hair. They're very feminine. They, you know, they were builders and they sang and they danced. They were great performers and they, they were pretty. And so they traveled the world. They were famous. I mean, their lives didn't end. The the story is is sad. It didn't end up great. But at their peak, they were famous. So kind of the same thing for Millie, um, Millie Christine, who were for, they were born enslaved. They were black girls, also a pair of conjoined twins, and they were known as this. Uh, I was like ah, the twin Nightingale, something like that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful voice. They were very pretty. They also toured, had a great career. But then there are other cases of conjoined twins that you know would be found and kind of introduced in this environment, whether or not they wanted to be there. But if they weren't as pretty or if they weren't able to sing, if they were not able to perform femininity in the right way or perform desirability in the right way, you don't hear about them. I remember mm-hmm. reading, there's a really great biography of Daisy and Violet Hilton. I can't remember the author's name, my bad. But if you look it up, it's like the first one that comes up. And he talks about this pair of Hungarian twins that were sort of set up as almost rivals to Daisy and Violet. But these women were not conventionally attractive. They were not, they were they're kind of pitted against one another, but they didn't have that kind of edge. And so we don't know their names. We yeah. don't have, there's not, there's not posters of them you can buy on Amazon. So it just shows how many different layers go into mm-hmm. who's successful and who's forgotten. And it, obviously, like, 
were both metalheads as well. <laughs> and like when you think about someone like just Merrick, you know, immortalized in, you know, Mastodon's great song. But what, he is kind of the epitome of the sideshow at the time, like someone who his you know, ailment got worse and worse over time and got to the point where it was at really at that cross section where sideshows are being presented as a scientific inquiry as well as entertainment. And also he was treated as like a scientific, you know, specimen in terms of like people trying to understand what was wrong with him. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, died in pain in a hospital quite young. And I, I think it is kind of a real encapsulation of, because I've read a lot of stuff in the researching of people involved in the business, you know, talking about him and talking like very empathetically about him as a person and then reading reports about him in newspapers and scientific inquiry and no one talks about him as a person. It's all about his body and what's wrong with him. So dehumanizing. That's I mean, one of my my little pandemic hobbies earlier, but in between writing my book and losing my mind, was I decided to search out autobiographies and and biographies too, but specifically autobiographies from sideshow freaks of old, from performers of old. And I came, I found some. I found a pamphlet that Daisy and Violet wrote to to describe themselves. It's, it's actually a source in that book that I that I mentioned. And I'm so interested in finding people's words describing themselves. I found Lavinia Warren's autobiography, mm-hmm. who was she became famous being married to to Tom Thumb, but she had a rich internal life. She was a person. We're yeah. people. <laughs> and I'd love to find more of those because it's that that is the thing, right? When you look different, when you look different to the point where you know, hundred years ago, you can make your living by exhibiting yourself by just walking out and being like, "Well, I'm different. Give me some money for it, I guess, because mm-hmm. nobody will hire me in a re- in a different occupation." <laughs> like, I, I think even just in terms of the marketing and and the banners, the way people were presented, like the alligator girl or the what is it, the way that um the woman named Crow, who I think she was Indonesian and she she had a distinct appearance. And the way that she was marketed, the way that the banners sort of sexualized and changed the way people appeared and made everyone look like a babe or like a super scary monster mm-hmm. when it was just a guy or just a woman or just a person who happened to be born a little bit different or a lot different. Mm-hmm. And like the weird scientific racism of it all and like the eugenics undercurrent, all of the, I think it's the most interesting thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And just, being able to be part of it a little bit in a modern sense and being able to look into that history and see how it applies now and see the discussions and see how it fits into modern disability liberation and dis- disability politics. It's, I, I think it's so cool that we we're still around. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Even if things have changed, even if it's different, especially post-World War One, when being disfigured or being deformed, what kind of lost its sheen because so many soldiers and people came back from the war different yeah you know changed like last when plastic surgery began generally uh well i'm sure it went back a lot further but uh what we know is the modern industry of plastic surgery arose because so many soldiers were coming home with like their eyes blown off or their chins missing or missing arms like it's it's interesting just thinking about the way that who counts as a freak has changed over the years, but mm-hmm. what still counts? Like some yeah. of the people I know who perform on the sideshow now, 
could go back a hundred years and get the same job because yeah. of who they are. And I think as well, we would be remiss to say if we're talking about labor relations in terms of the sideshow and your main work is as a labor journalist as well. <laughs> you know, you, you can't come on a podcast and not plug your work. So <laughs> you have a fantastic book called Fight Like Hell. The Untold History of American Labor. Yeah, it's uh, it's birthdays this week. Oh, it came out a year ago this week. And I'm doing a little, um, if you're in London, and if you hear this before Saturday, um, I'm doing an event at the Clapton Clubhouse with my friends and Don Ray. They're doing an acoustic gig. You should come. It'll be cool. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I wrote a whole book. It's, um, <laughs> I wrote a whole book. It's a big book. I wrote it in 2020 and 2021 when the world was even weirder. And yeah, it's basically a people's history, like a marginalized people's history of labor in the USA. So it focuses mostly on women and black and brown workers, indigenous workers, Asian workers, queer and trans workers, sex workers, disabled workers, and uh, incarcerated workers. The folks that tend to get left out of the mainstream conversations around labor. And yeah, there is a little section on Sideshow. And, and some people did pick up on or like, what's this about? This is not something that I'd, I'd seen in this context before. Because I think there's such a, a siloing out of different identities and issues i think you know there's the civil rights movement and there's the women's rights movement queer and trans liberation there's the disability rights movement there's labor movement but so many of the same people have been involved in all of those it's, or a, it's like a nexus ones. of everything coming it together it is whenever whatever your identity is whatever your background is if you go to a protest for a certain issue you're probably still going to work on monday mm-hmm. right so you're part of the labor movement too especially if you try and organize and bring some of that energy to the job and writing about like that disabled chapter meant so much to me because not only did I get to write about the sideshow, but I, I tried to mix it up a little bit and kind of play with people's perceptions of what labor is. Mm-hmm. So I also wrote about um, coal miners disabled with black lung and the wildcat strikes they led in the 60s in West Virginia to get benefits. I wrote about those soldiers coming home and the early disa- uh, like disabled rights uh, organizations that they founded. I wrote about you know the, how the Black Panthers helped a group of disabled activists occupy a bunch of federal buildings for a month in San Francisco. Like there's all those intersections are just so interesting and feel so relevant to me now because it's all been connected the whole time. You know we can't talk about Sarah Bartman without talking about racism, misogynoir, and colonialism, and all these other problems. And we also can't talk about the sideshow in general without getting into it. But we also, <laughs> we also, we also, but the solidarity that was there among those workers too, that like we mentioned with freaks, like we mentioned before, that was part of it too. Mm. It's just, just emphasizing the human parts of all mm-hmm. of it. Cause it's yeah. easy to get lost in, okay, this is in history. This is a political thing. Like, yeah, but it's always been people, whether or not other fo- other folks recognized us as such mm-hmm. right like, yeah i think exactly. i've only been a person for a hundred years <laughs> exactly exactly Ooh, that's weird to think about and uh if that sounds very interesting if that sounds very interesting to you you can find fight like hell by kim kelly in any good independent bookstore do not buy it off amazon <laughs> um and if you enjoyed this show you can find more of it on spotify you can support us on patreon for as little as five quid a month you get episodes like this and early bonus episodes you get cool stuff at 100 patrons you're going to get to decide what tattoo i get which i feel like is going to be a big mistake but 
Uh, I want to thank you very much for listening. And before we end off, Kim, where can people find you online? I'm aggressively online. I'm still on Twitter, which seems like a worse idea every day. But I'm at Grim Kim because that was my college radio DJ name and I'm sticking with it. Uh, I have a Patreon too where I I post all my work and sometimes exclusive stuff. You can find that at LinkedIn Twitter. And also I just I'm a freelancer so I write all over the place. I write for Teen Vogue and Fast Company and um kind of whoever will have me really. And yeah, I it's a little harder to find my book in the UK, but the internet, I know y'all get the internet here, so it is not impossible. Mm-hmm. And if you uh would like to talk to your local independent bookseller and ask them to order it for you, I bet they would love to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just uh I'll just google me. Yep. <laughs> And uh, just as a final note, join a union. Thank you very much. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs)